Hello, and welcome to Profiles, a program that introduces interesting people from Indiana, the United States, and the world to WFIU listeners. I'm Owen Johnson. Our guest on this occasion is a man whose work many listeners hear every week, but they might not recognize his name. Peter Breslow is a senior producer at National Public Radio. Peter, welcome to Profiles. Nice to be here. Thanks. When you were a student at the University of Massachusetts, what did you think you would be doing after graduation? Well, I was pretty sure that professional basketball was out of the picture. And I had so no idea of what I wanted. The only thing I knew I liked to do was to write. So I always figured uh, it would have something to do with writing. And as I was about to graduate as an English major and realized I pretty much had no marketable skills and I was an okay writer, I was by no means an outstanding writer, um, I decided to get my teaching credential. And so I did that. And it turns out that at UMass, you could do your student teaching if you wanted in Quito, Ecuador. And I had always wanted to get to South America. And so I used that opportunity to finagle my way down to South America, which kind of was an entree into what ultimately led me to NPR many years later. So I traveled for a couple of years, became pretty proficient at Spanish and Portuguese. I lived in Brazil for about a year and um, my Portuguese got pretty good. I came back to the States. I decided to write a book about my travels, just kind of naively thinking that who wouldn't want to publish this book? It turns out everybody. So I wrote this travel book. It was kind of a goofy, offbeat guide for traveling cheaply in Latin America, which people were doing back then. This was sort of the late 70s, I guess. But it had a lot of uh, – I did a lot of wilderness stuff and – mountain climbing and stuff like that. So I finished that and spent a year writing that and spent another year trying to get it published. And today I think that book is a moldy pile in my basement somewhere maybe. And I did various things. I worked at a community arts organization. Um, I turned down a teaching job because I realized I was thinking that it wouldn't be exciting enough for me. And eventually – at my mother's nudging, um, I sent some of my writings – I guess that might have been chapters from the book – to a cousin of hers who was starting an all-sports radio network. He was hired by the head of – to be the head of production by uh, some people who actually were the same people who started ESPN. They wanted to start a radio version of ESPN. So was that before the TV or at the same time? They had successfully started ESPN and then I think they sold it and then they decided to try to do a uh, radio version. So th- this relative of mine hired me to be the uh, outdoors commentator because of my outdoor stuff. But I think they had in mind sort of a hunting and fishing show and I created my own show called Way Outdoors and I just had it be sort of hang gliding and kayaking and things that I was interested in. I can't imagine what that sounded like. I wrote these scripts twice a week and um, they were never edited. I never had written a script in my life. I had never voiced anything. I was voicing these scripts. I mean oh, it would be interesting to hear what they sound like. But anyway, they went out into the ether and there were about 70 stations that carried this uh, broadcast. In order to make it be a full-time job, they gave me uh, – I became a sportscast writer which I kind of have an average knowledge of sports, but you know, I'm no 
sports nut, but these people were complete sports nuts. Everyone I worked with knew, you know, Joe Pepitone's batting average in 1963. But I would I quickly learned the ropes. I mean, I walked in the first day and they said, "Okay, you got the four o'clock," and so I wrote scripts and learned to use cliches and. You know how sports guys sound. And what does that say about sports broadcasting? <laughs> it was fun though and it you know, it was my entree to radio. But the place went broke after nine months, owing us three months' salary and turns out they hadn't been paying our medical benefits either. So that ended and uh, I pursued NPR from there. So you learned broadcasting then effectively by teaching yourself? Kind of. I mean I uh, – what I did was I wrote – letters to every public radio station in the United States in a, that was in a place where I thought I might want to live. Of the three places that wrote back, maybe one of them wasn't a form letter, but no one offered me a job. They, they all really said, well, we don't even have producers. And But I also wrote letters to the executive producers at NPR for Morning Edition, All Things Considered. And I got form letters back from everybody else. Except uh, for the executive producer of All Things Considered who was a guy named Steve Reiner who went on to actually become a uh, producer at 60 Minutes. Uh, but I figured I had nothing to lose when I wrote these letters. You cannot do this anymore at NPR. But back then, you could kind of wheedle your way in there. So I just sort of wrote this probably a bit snarky, probably a bit gonzo letter saying, yes, I don't have any – marketable skills but I have a lot of experience. I spent all this time in Latin America and I could speak the languages. And in the 80s, which this was, Latin America was the big story of the Contra War and the war in El Salvador and the dictatorships in Latin America, some of them starting to fall and you know, Argentina with Alfonsin there and in Chile, well, that took a bit longer but Brazil. Um, so that part of the world was of interest. Anyway, he invited me down to NPR to try out. This is a whole long story. You want me to keep going? Please, please do. <laughs> okay. So I had a friend in D.C. and I got to Washington the day after some enormous blizzard. I remember I took a train down from Connecticut. This is where I was, uh, where the, the radio thing was. And the city was frozen solid. Uh, I had to hitchhike in. There were no buses. Amazingly, somebody picked me up very quickly. I, I was so nervous. I couldn't believe it. You know, I knock on the door at NPR and the guy who told me to come down was on vacation in Brazil. No one knew or expected me and didn't – what? Who? What? So for most of the week, they just let me watch. And so I would look over people's shoulders and see – this is back in the days of analog magnetic tape and using a razor blade. And, and I saw how people cut it and put a little mark – well, you know, put a little uh, grease pencil mark and made the edit and um, paid attention. So by the end of the week – they let me cut something and this is – Susan Stamberg was actually the host of All Things Considered and Sandy Unger was the other host. And they must have given me some little two-way interview for the end of the show. I cut it but over the course of the day that I was working on it, I just amassed a pile of 10-inch reels, none of which I had labeled. And at some point, I completely lost the body of the interview in that morass and the producer of the show – Five minutes there, opens the door to the edit booth. You okay? I said, yeah, yeah, fine. And he closes the door and I just go, well, you know, I guess I'm not getting this job and wondering, you know, what music they're going to play to fill the airtime. And uh, somehow, miraculously, the radio gods were looking over my shoulder. I found 
the master reel. I put leader tape on either end. He came storming in with a minute to go. I handed it to him and it went on the air. But actually, I didn't get the job. I wasn't hired. I returned to Connecticut living off unemployment and then that was ending. So then I contacted NPR again and said, do you think if I came down, I could fill in? The guy said yes and I filled in and eventually you know, they probably thought I already had a job there. At some point, I actually was hired. What got me on the track that I did uh, and that I've continued on uh, with a lot of sort of more exotic assignments was actually my, my travels in South America because very soon after I arrived at NPR, Reagan, President Reagan did a trip to South America and the main stop was in Brazil and I was the only person at NPR who spoke Portuguese and they, so they sent me. And uh, you know, I got to go – here I was a production assistant, barely any experience at all and I got to go to Brazil. I think we went to Colombia. We ended up in Costa Rica doing a secret interview with Commander Zero, the dissident uh, Contra guy up at his hideaway. Um, so it was like, wow, this is a great job. What is it about radio that attracts you? The simplicity. I mean I've worked with – I've been around a lot of TV guys and of course it's not so cumbersome anymore and a lot of people are holding their own cameras. Reporters are holding their own little HD cameras. But still, it usually takes a couple of people to do TV. In radio, you can just do it by yourself, although I usually am going out with a host or a reporter. And you know, the immediacy and the intimacy of just that one-on-one -on -one with a person and to hear someone's voice in your ear is just – a totally unique experience and you get to use the listener's imagination which still to this day I think is more powerful than any image on TV or any paragraph than anybody could write. If you use a, a judicious piece of script and, and have the right sound or, or sound bite to go with it, you can conjure up something that, that is unimaginable. There was a book published, I think it was about 20 years ago, um, called The Sound and the Story and it was about NPR and it was about a controversy at the time between the sound of the story and the story itself and some of the old timers were saying if we get all these high production values with music and rhythm and whatever, it's not – we're going to lose something. It's, were you part of that debate? No, I remember that book. I remember that guy. Uh I forget his name, but I, he followed me around for a while while I was while I was working on a story. I, I actually don't really even really remember that debate. I could see. I mean, the nice thing about NPR is that there's room for everybody. There's room for the hardcore, hard nosed, straight ahead journalists, and there is room for uh, people maybe more like me who like to do something when we can a bit more stylized. And there's room for both and you know, I'm not going to stick music under a three-and-a-half-minute piece about Obama stumping on health care. But I might stick something or sound or birds chirping or whatever under some atmospheric that I'm using for a story. So I, I don't see them mutually exclusive at all and I think that's the great thing about NPR. You can have that and the straight-ahead news and you can have the more sound luxuriant things. Unfortunately, I feel that we're moving away from the sound luxuriant things because of you know part of it is just kind of evolution and uh, 
NPR over the course of my career has gone from fringe to completely, totally mainstream. I mean, it's a it's a major news source now, and with that sort of comes, I don't know if I'd say more responsibility, but uh, more of a a hard news edge than we used to have, and there's less room, I think, on the radio uh, for some of that more creative stuff. It still gets on the daily shows. But I mean that was an, an attraction for me when I switched from All Things Considered to Weekend Edition was that and, – and now even more, I find it one of the last vestiges of a place where you can – that makes room for some of those kinds of stories. Is that because it's in a – on days, Saturday and Sunday that are slower paced or that there's less news? Yeah, and I think people – Tune in for different reasons. They, you know, when you tune into uh, ATC or Morning Edition, you're, you want you want that news, and you know you're on your way to work. You're taking a shower. You're bringing the kids home. Whatever you got, fifteen minutes to get what it is you need, and and you're going to hear it. The weekends still, I think, are places where I mean, people listen to Weekend Edition both Saturday and Sunday for like close to an hour. I think the figure is so they listen to it more as a program. You know, sometimes Morning Edition and, and All Things Considered can end up being sort of more of a news service. Uh, they will make time for the the more fun stuff or the more um, out there kind of stuff, but less than we can on the weekends. There's more time on the weekend. Uh, pieces tend to run longer. That doesn't always mean it's better. Sometimes we're too self-indulgent and pieces get to be too long. I still think that there is uh, – uh, the weekend offers an opportunity that the weekdays don't. One of the first programs that I think you won an award for, Peabody, was um, Cowboys on Everest. Um, that would seem to mix some of your interests in outdoors and, and radio. Can you talk about that? This is way back again. Uh, I can't believe how long I've worked at NPR. Uh, 1988 and even then I was sort of the person at NPR who did a lot of outdoorsy stories. It just kind of – it's always been an interest of mine. I mean I always kind of like to take microphones where maybe other people haven't taken them and getting them wet or snowed on in the process. A phone call came in from somebody and it got – eventually got passed on to me because I was the outdoorsy guy that this team from Wyoming, the Wyoming Centennial Everest Expedition called Cowboys on Everest were going to be celebrating the centennial of the statehood of Wyoming by climbing Mount Everest. I'm not still to this day not quite sure what the connection was but I wasn't that interested until the guy said, and we'll have a satellite phone. And he was thinking in terms of, well, you could interview us on the satellite phone. And I immediately started thinking I could feed stories on the satellite phone. So Neil Conan, host of Talking Nation, was then my boss, the executive producer of ATC. I said, Neil, you know, uh, I, could, I could go on this expedition and send stories. And he said – you know, bless his heart. He said, "Yeah, you know, if, if NPR can come up with the money, you can go." So, that being NPR, there was no money, and months went by, and I kind of almost forgot about it. And then, three days before the expedition was—I remember it was like a a Friday—and they were going to leave on a Monday. The NPR said, "Okay, you can go." So, fortunately, an REI had just opened up nearby. I drove there and I walked in the door. I said, I'm here to spend $2,000 on long underwear and I did uh, and I you know, madly cut off the uh, price tags and packed my bag and 
my girlfriend helped me sublease my apartment and uh, it turns out I was gone for three months on that expedition. It was it was a whole arduous thing. Uh, it was a northern route. It was the route that uh, Mallory and Irvine used, uh, the famous uh, team who to this day, we don't know if they actually summited or not. Matter of fact, some not too long ago, they discovered uh, Mallory's body on the mountain. We did an overland route through China uh, through – well, we flew ultimately to Lhasa, Tibet and then traveled overland. It, it took a month. There was an earthquake that knocked out the bridge. There was landslides, it, it, just everything imaginable. We got separated from our gear, which got soaking wet. And, but eventually, one morning, I woke up and went out my tent door and there is the north face of Mount Everest. There was this big old uh, satellite phone, which if the – I mean, it's, you know, today I can take one in a little tiny hand. You know, it looks like a briefcase with an ISDN quality line. This, of course, was just a phone line and you needed this gigantic generator to run it and a big uh, antenna and it had its own hut and everything. But it worked and the telephone could ring and – you know, somebody goes, it's for you. And it was, you know, DC calling uh, you on Mount Everest. I spent two months on the mountain with this team doing lots of different stories. And I climbed part of the way up along with everybody else. And I would come back down to base camp to file my stories and then climb back up. And I probably, I think I did about 16 or 17 stories over the course of the months. And eventually, I mean, I spent about a month at uh, Advanced Base Camp, which was like 21,000 feet, which is really not a good thing to do. Just very uncomfortable. A lot of it was like a really long, uncomfortable camping trip because you're sleeping on rocks and it's so cold. You have to sleep inside of two sleeping bags and you have a, a bottle for your elimination during the night and you have a bottle to drink out of. And you want to make sure that you drink out of the right one during the night. But of course, you have to keep your water bottle inside your sleeping bag. Otherwise, it freezes. And uh, you're on this moraine, which is just kind of pointy, jagged rock. So you have as many uh, cushions underneath you as you can get. But it was a great team. And uh, I climbed up the North Call, which was this technical climb. And I got to the top of that, which was 23,000 feet. But I, I am not a real mountain climber by any stretch of the imagination. There were, the people on the expedition were. And I... I just kind of followed them. A few people got a bit higher, 25,000, but uh, there were just um, horrific winds, 100-mile-an-hour uh, winds that blew our tents down and we retreated and then we advanced again, tried it one more time. The same thing happened again. Tents got shredded and uh, so then we had to abandon the trip. So yeah, it was a three-month thing and it was just definitely once in a lifetime. Let's take a break here for some, some music. Um, uh, you indicated you'd like to hear a harmonica piece. Can you talk about that a bit? Well, this is a little Walter who's probably the greatest uh, blues harmonica player of all time. And uh, I am a kind of a blues nut and I do play the harmonica. And my good buddy John Burnett from NPR, who is a world-class harmonica player, much better than I. We travel around together a lot and we inflict our harmonicas on people as we travel. The blues is one of my passions and it's something that I inflict on uh, Scott Simon all the time and I make him do blues stories and, you know, he'll read the questions that I write and 
he'll sound like a blues authority and he'll say, you know, that, that harp playing of yours has, uh, has a little bit of Sonny Boy Williamson in it, you know, but I also detect some uh, Big Walter Horton. And, um, you know, Scott will go to member stations and people go, Scott, thank you so much for your love of the blues. And, you know, one day Scott is going to get a, a Lifetime Achievement Award from the W.C. Handy Foundation and it'll be ironic. <laughs> was Juke by Little Walter, music chosen by our guest on Profiles today, Peter Breslow, a producer at National Public Radio. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. Just before the break, you you mentioned Scott Simon. Um, How did you get matched up with him? Scott and I are like an old married couple. I mean, I've been working with Scott since like 1993, I guess. We've covered... At least three wars together, Kosovo, invasion of Afghanistan, invasion of Iraq. You know, we just – we're like the same age. We just get along great and there's um, – I mean he is unbelievably talented person. I mean he's definitely currently the best writer uh, left at NPR I would say. And Scott has this ability – I mean he is such a quick study. I mean he is so busy. He's doing 10,000 things at once. Um, he's always working on some outside project. I mean I, here's an example. I mean we were in Afghanistan. You're working around the clock and you're completely exhausted. So finally, you know, you get a, a couple of hours in the evening after dinner maybe and I'm watching a DVD of Dr. Zhivago that I bought on my laptop and Scott is noodling away on his computer. Scott, what are you writing? We just filed. What are, what are you doing? He said, oh, it's just a screenplay I'm working on. And, and he is always – I mean in all three of those wars, he was working on a book. He was working on Pretty Birds. He was working on um, uh, Windy City. I think he was working on during Iraq. And uh, I mean he's like novels, nonfiction. I mean the, the man has endless capacity to – and I think he probably sleeps for 20 minutes a night. But he also has the ability to uh, – as I said, uh, he's a real quick study and you know, he is so busy and hosts in general are so busy. When you go out with a host, they've paid not very much attention to the story until they're on it and you as the producer are responsible for coming up with the idea and who we're going to talk to and what are the scenes going to be and how we're going to do this and that and this and that. You know, and I'll hand a, a sheet to Scott. Here's who we're talking to and here's what we want from her. And then Scott will – you know, he's read like two sentences that I've written or something and he'll go and do this brilliant interview and somewhere in there will be the one question that this person has never been asked before and 
you know, he just has a real unique talent and we've kind of, after all these years, kind of have it down pat. So, uh, you know, we know how to turn the stuff around. And he's fun. You know, he was fun. Uh, I mean, there's nobody I'd rather have in a sort of, except for maybe Robert Siegel, uh, in a breaking news situation, just, you know, throw open the mic and they're, they're the host and, and let them go. Just, okay, Scott, we've got so-and-so on the line and they saw a blank, blank, blank. And, you know, it, it makes a producer's job easy. You've mentioned actually several different kinds of, of types of programming here. You've talked about war reporting. Um, you've talked about breaking news stories and you've talked about these feature kinds of things. How do you change personalities to, to be able to do each of those? Well, I, I mean I kind of thrive on, um, on all of them. Uh, you know, the war stuff is – I mean that's the thing that really gets you going. You know, especially if it's a big story like any journalist, you're going to want to get your stuff on the air. But fortunately, I mean those things are few and far between, the, the horrifying stuff. And as a show producer, uh, breaking news is – that's always a challenge. You know, you're live on the air. Like I said, I mean a lot of it is dependent on your host who you're just throwing stuff to and hoping it works. Working on a weekend show, you don't get to do that as much as when I worked on All Things Considered, which I did produce All Things Considered off and on for a number of years. And um, you know, That's a different kind of adrenaline rush and exciting to see how well you do and you, know, you sit back and evaluate the next day or two days later and say, well, what could we have done different? That's probably why I never really became a reporter, you know, that great a hard news person. But I think I, you know, I really uh, like to do feature stuff and because uh, I like writing and, you know, you get a chance to show that off and you can sometimes approach a story in a different way, in a more um, unexpected way and use things in an unexpected way than you can in a in a news story. So they're all part of the the pie. I mean some people – some people excel at one more than the other. Uh, some people can't do one or do more of the other. I mean a host needs to be able to do all those things. Uh, that's why some people make good hosts and some people don't. Some people can be great reporters but they, they're just kind of OK hosts because they never, they never let their personality come out on the air or, or their personal interests. But when you're a host, I think you need to – you need to be – you know, some of you has to come across on the air, which is a little anathema to some reporters because they feel, you know, if I'm going to be a legitimate reporter, I need to have a hard line between who I am and, and what it is I'm reporting. But that line gets blurred a bit when, when you're a host. One thing that has fascinated me and I think fascinates a lot of listeners are the musical buttons between stories. Who's responsible for those? You were supervising senior uh, producer for a while. Was that your responsibility? No, no, no. That's the director. And, you know, there have been some great, great directors. Uh, Bob Boylan was a fantastic director. He does all songs considered now. Um, Sarah Byer Kelly is, uh, was my director on Weekend Edition Saturday and she still directs um, the show. She's a senior producer now too. You know, those are their choices. Usually – if they have enough time, they'll you know try to pick out music that uh, kind of fits the mood and is uh, appropriate for you know changing the mood of the show. I mean that's sometimes why, why a button is there because you're moving from something hard to softer. If you've just heard some poignant interview about something and you're about to go interview Dame Edna, you don't want to um, 
make that too abrupt for the listeners here. So if you can find something, you know, it's a real art to find the music that's the nice transition between those two uh, moods on the show. Let's have our own musical um, transition here, or at least some music. Uh, you've suggested music by Muddy Waters. Yeah, Muddy Waters. I have a picture of him up in my office at home. I mean, he's kind of my musical godfather. And again, I you know I inflict him on Scott all the time. I don't know. I mean, blues is just the. Uh, I, I guess I you know I, I picked up the harmonica when I was in college. If you blow in and out on it long enough, you. Um, it starts to sound good and I was traveling a lot then and it's just something you can stick in your pocket. I always have one with me. You know, if you talk to anyone who is a lover of the blues, I, you know, Muddy Waters is, is going to be right up there. Distance Call, performed by Muddy Waters, uh, music chosen by our guest on Profiles today, NPR producer Peter Breslow. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. I noticed in looking at your kind of biographical data that you had some time on a William Benton Fellowship at the University of Chicago. What did you do there? That was a dream. That was uh, – I'd been – it's sort of for mid-career journalists and it was uh, for broadcast journalists specifically and they loved NPR. So there were actually three NPR people on it at the time that I did it. Um, I'm still friends with a lot of the people from the fellowship too. Jackie Lydon, uh, who's still at NPR, and John Madison, who was our South Africa correspondent. Um, he's long gone now from NPR. And you could basically take courses for credit or not for credit at the University of Chicago. And you weren't really required to do anything except uh, follow your interests. And I followed whatever I was interested in at the time, which would have been a lot of international relations stuff and some Mideast studies. I remember I took a course with Rashid Khalidi, um, who was a great professor. And uh, I was interested in video production, so I took a video production class. Probably the best part of it was that they would invite speakers in to talk to us or have lunch with us, you know, everyone from David Fanning from Frontline to Ted Koppel, or, you know, and you'd have lunch with them and just talk about the industry or journalism issues. And but they would also get us tickets to Cubs games and take us to the opera. And then we ended up on a, doing a foreign trip to uh, Russia 
Latvia and Kazakhstan um, to finish up the fellowship and um, you know just traveling around and this was like 1991 or two and you know uh, Eastern Europe had just opened up so that was just a fascinating time to to be there and you know meet with officials and talk about things. I think they spent too much money on us because they eventually went broke and unfortunately the Benton, the Benton Fellowship no longer exists. Well, at least we've benefited from your, from your time there. <laughs> a couple of uh, interesting documentaries um, that you did before you went on the Benton Fellowship perhaps we could talk about briefly. One uh, was called Homecoming, Return to Vietnam. Yeah, that was a great trip. Um, Duc Nguyen was a, uh, a Vietnamese American. He did commentaries for All Things Considered. He had fled the country when he was about 15 after the fall of Saigon. His father had actually been a regional governor and was captured at gunpoint during the Tet Offensive of 68. Duke had not seen him for, I don't know, something like 10 years or more. Anyway, they all came, eventually ended up in the U.S. and established themselves. And uh, Duke's sister who had some mental problems, never left Vietnam and she had died there and she was – they were Buddhist and she was cremated. And so Duke wanted to return to Vietnam and uh, so I went back with him. And this was 1989. So it was pretty early. Vietnam is I'm sure way, way, way different now. And we did this uh, great uh, series of stories, um, kind of him telling his personal story and him hunting for his sister's ashes. And it was one of those stories where, you know, you're on the road and you're always looking for, you know, the great piece of tape, the great beginning, the great ender for your story. And the very first day, I mean, after we flew and woke up the next day, we got, you know, this unbelievable moment, which was Duke going to the Buddhist temple where his sister's ashes were. Him seeing her ashes and having this emotional sort of, you know, breakdown or crying moment, this cacophonous thunderstorm blaring outside and uh, the Buddhist monk hitting this bell. I mean it was like the end. It was obviously going to be the end of a great story. But our story we, – we had to find the whole rest of the story still though. I mean to backfill. You know, it was so rare to, to kind of have your – your climax before you've even started really reporting. So, OK, we've got the hard part now and now we have to backtrack. So then we spent the next – it was a long trip. I think we were gone like five weeks. We did a whole series of stories. We traveled to way. I remember there's this funny moment where um, we were going to tell the story of his father. His father was captured in Hue and part of the what happened during the Tet Offensive in 68 – Firecrackers were going off, and the Vietnamese, the Viet Cong, used it as a way to mask gunfire, and that way they're, they it, it sort of masked their entry into the city. So I knew that I wanted to have Duke write about that. So, so we looked around and we found firecrackers, and we, I mean, these were like firecrackers out of uh, central casting. These enormous. <laughs> You can imagine there weren't much in the way of regulations. I mean they're sort of small sticks of dynamite and we we found this. So I said, OK. We've got to record these. We've got to set these off. Let's find a place where they're really going to echo. So there was this um, – these guys were building a new sort of cement house and they were had taken a break for lunch. And so I, we asked them – Duke asked them, can we go in there and and set these off? And they didn't know what we were doing. But so I tacked them up and uh, – 
we lit uh, the fuse and then we had a sound technician with us and we recorded this unbelievable echo of, of the firecrackers which uh, made their way into the story. Another um, program but with a domestic focus was Grapes of Wrath, revisiting John Steinbeck's America. What kind of program was that? That was a, f- a great story to work on. Um, my friend David Sheff, who is a writer of some renown, his latest book, uh, Beautiful Boy, was about his son's meth addiction, which was just an amazing, amazing piece of work. And actually, his son came with us uh, when he was only about 10 or 12 on this trip that we did. Anyway, it was for the – I'm going to get my decades mixed up there. Maybe the 50th anniversary of the uh, publication of Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath. And David had pitched the idea of uh, – I had never met him. But he had pitched the idea of doing a story about finding the descendants of the original Okies in California and to also go to Oklahoma where they had come from. We did that and uh, David, who has since become a good friend of mine and was a very good writer. So we went – I remember we started in Salisaw, Oklahoma, which is where the book – part of the book starts. I believe. And um, we ended up in Bakersfield where a lot of the uh, people from Oklahoma ended up. And we paired that with David who lived in California, was friends with the actor Peter Coyote who basically for free read part of the story and he's got that great gravelly voice. So I picked out segments of the book for him to read and there were just, you know, places where you could kind of crossfade what the real people who we interviewed, what they were saying with, with the fiction from the book and back and forth and just these parallel lives and it just kind of wove together just sort of perfectly and it was a it, it was a pretty powerful story and then David and I went on to do a, a similar thing uh, for the I'll get my decades wrong again probably the 30th anniversary of To Kill a Mockingbird and we went to um, Harper Lee's hometown in uh, Alabama and uh, and told that story doing a, a, a similar technique as I Sit here listening um, to you. You talk. I get some sense that the sound part of the broadcast, or the conception of it with the sound, just sort of magically materializes. Is that what it's about? It would get it off all BBC sound effects records. We don't go anywhere. <laughs> actually, you know, it's radio. I mean, the sound is sound is what drives the story. It's it's not the script. I mean, when I'm scouting a story or talking to people on the phone, I'm always thinking, okay, well, you know, where could I interview them that might create some kind of ambiance or can they take us on a tour of something? Can they show us something? Where can we set the story? And when you get back from a, from a trip and you've got all this tape, I mean, you're going to write to the tape. You're not going to make the tape fit to the writing. I mean, the tape is what drives the story. The sound is what pushes the story forward. And I mean, that's why... We're in radio because we're in it for the sound and, you know, with judicious and perfect and succinct writing, you know, it just can create the perfect combination. But do these – do the sound ideas just come to you or does it take hard thinking? You know, it depends. I mean some stories will just – you know, the sound's going to be there. I mean it's a natural. You just hear the pitch or you read a print piece and you go, man, now that would make a really good radio story because whatever the fill in the blank, the sound that's going to be there to – you know, you know you've got something to hang the story around and that there's going to be this great piece of, 
of sound to, to work with. Um, you know, sometimes you have to work to create the sound. Uh, for example, right now I'm working on a story about a former lumber town in Oregon that's trying to reinvent itself as an outdoor mecca, specifically about um, mountain biking. So, you know, as soon as I heard that, I, I said, well, we got to go for a mountain bike ride and I'm going to wire up with wireless mics uh, some mountain bike riders and record the sound of that and that will – I'm hoping – I'm still conceptualizing the story. I'm hoping that you know, the ride can maybe bookend the, the piece. It will definitely begin with a ride and, and maybe it will end with the ride too. So you're kind of always looking for those opportunities to um, make it a radio story, not a print story that's somehow gotten on the radio. What's your most memorable story? Some of the ones you mentioned, you know, the Everest thing was just a once-in-a-lifetime thing and, you know, certainly that's – if I'm known for anything, I guess. As, as Neil Conan said to me when I got a Peabody Award, he says, that's going in the obit. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. You know, I, I think those stories I did with David Sheff, I really enjoyed a lot, the literary ones. Um, some of the war reporting uh, out of Afghanistan, uh, we did a – Scott did a great story from Bamiyan where they blew up the Buddhas. Those stories where – you know, you're kind of – everything is still raw and people are still kind of processing what's happening and, you know, and things are still developing. You know, those tend to be the stories that stick with you that have the most emotional impact. I have to ask something. Both you and Scott got married after you got to um, N NPR. In fact, I found one story that said your um, wedding was number 41 marriage. Uh -huh. Uh, yeah, Susan Stamberg keeps a uh, keeps a list of all the NPR weddings. Does does work at a place like NPR with all the travel um, complicate f family life? Well, once I had kids, I have twin ten year old daughters now. You know, I don't travel like I used to. I don't take the same risks that I used to. I, for you know, they I didn't go back to Iraq. When they asked me to, um, it was the first time I ever said no when it was really bad there like 2004. I, you know, it just wasn't worth it to, you know, when you have kids. Now they're a bit older so I, I, I don't say I take more risks now but, um, it, you know, it definitely tempers things. And also having kids kind of coincided with me becoming the supervising senior producer of the show. So built into my job, there was less travel. You know, I have been on the road a fair amount lately and it's it's a little, you know, then the burden, everything goes on to my wife who is actually a producer at NPR too. But she – a couple of years ago, she was on the road a lot. So as long as neither one of us are gone at the same time, uh, it works out. And Scott um, – Scott takes his family with him a lot of the time. I mean he's on the road so much for speaking engagements and whatever. He, he, takes, he takes them with him a lot. We're going to finish up with some um – Music by Junior Wells. Why do you like him? Junior Wells, uh, again, another great Chicago blues guy. And I did – he I actually got to meet and have a conversation with. This is way back. Alex Chadwick, another great, great NPR reporter and host, no longer with NPR unfortunately. He was uh, – we were doing a show out of Chicago, weekend edition. We were doing it out of Chicago. And um, – Teresa from Teresa's Lounge. Teresa was this woman who had the Teresa's Lounge, which was a kind of a famous bar where a lot of blues guys got their start. Matter of fact, Junior Wells, I think, was like 16 years old when he started playing at Teresa's. Anyway, she died while we were in Chicago. And I said, well, let's see if we can get Junior Wells to come in. And he did. He came into the Chicago, the old Chicago Bureau 
and he was uh, just this great guy and he was so petite and he had on – I remember he had on like overalls, dungaree overalls but they were ironed and he had this immaculate crease down the middle of it. So we're chatting with him before Alex does the interview and Alex goes, hey, Junior, you know, uh, Pete here plays the harmonica. And, and so Junior says, well, you got to come to the checkerboard tonight, the check, famous checkerboard lounge on the south side. You know, we're doing a tribute to uh, Teresa. I said, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not in your caliber. You know, I no. And he was like – he was really insistent but in a nice way and he really seemed to genuinely mean – you know, it would be really neat if you came. And of course, I mean I was – there's no way I'm going to get on stage with these, you know, these guys. But I said I would come. And uh, I did finally make it down there, but I was working late and it was already like 1 o'clock in the morning by the time I got there and Junior had already played and left. So the pressure was off and I, I, I never did get on the stage. That brings us to the conclusion of this conversation. Our guest today has been Peter Breslow, the senior producer at National Public Radio. Peter, thanks for visiting. Thanks a lot. It was fun. To our listeners, we're pleased you joined us and we close with that music, Hoodoo Man Blues, played by Junior Wells. For WFIU, I'm Owen Johnson. Lord, I wonder what's the got the matter. I'm tired over time. It seems that the hours everything and change, but I hold my hand. Lord, I'm trying to make you understand. Lord, you know what? Everybody, they tell me Somebody the hoodoo, the hoodoo man Now, you know, I, I buzzed your bell this morning, baby Had your elevator running slow I buzzed your bell, little girl, take my phone up A third floor, but I hold my hand Lord, I'm trying to make you understand Lord, you know what? They tell the baby the program you just heard was recorded in April of 2010. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, Executive Producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.